Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 106. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, our special guest is Obadiah Thomas, a juggler, musician, and successful school show performer. Before we talk to Obadiah, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. You can find out about the IJA at juggle.org. Okay, drop everything. Get ready for Obadiah Thomas. Welcome to Drop Everything number 106. My very special guest, Mr. Obadiah Thomas. Welcome, Obadiah. Hello there. Hey, so great to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Let's start with your name. It's a bit unusual. What is the derivation of Obadiah? And uh, what do people call you for short? <laughs> well, people call me for short Obi, and, uh, but I don't like it. I like the full name Obadiah. I get Obi-Wan Kenobi and Obadiah. My ex-wife calls me Obi-Quiet. Mm, okay. And uh, you're saying, I, I imagine your parents gave you that name. You didn't, you didn't choose it for yourself, or was that uh, your name from birth? Well, uh, my full name is Thomas Obadiah Mann, and uh, somewhere along the line, I heard that some famous person had used his middle name as his first name and first name as last name as a showbiz name. And I said, oh, that would work for me, too. It comes from my family. It comes from a great, 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 great grandfather who fought at Bunker Hill, Captain Obadiah Mann. My grandmother had just done a big uh, uh, research of family history and came up with that name. And my mother, trying to please her mother-in-law, says, oh, I'm going to give this as a middle name to our youngest son. And then my grandmother thought, that was a crazy name. Why would you give them that name? <laughs> but I love it, and I have uh, embraced it ever since. And I guess for show business purposes, it's always good to have something that's memorable. And certainly when people hear your name, I doubt yeah. they, they might not get it correct, but at least they know that you have an right. unusual name. I've been introduced as uh, Jeremiah and Jebediah many times on stage, and Obedia. <laughs> no, not, not close enough, but I should need to write out it phonetically so they pronounce it right. Um, but it's uh, just for the uh, statistical people out there, it's the uh, shortest book in the Old Testament is the book of Obadiah, about two chapters long. Well, I'm sure there's a joke there that we won't get into that might be a little bit too uh, too mature for our, our listening audience. But we'll, 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 uh... I'm tipping a whole routine that I do on my name right now, so we can get into this. Well, give us a little bit. Go ahead. Give us a little bit. Oh, what... Okay, well, I, I, my name's Obadiah. It's an old biblical name. My whole family had biblical names. I have a brother named Jacob, another one named Nebuchadnezzar. I have a sister named Lot's wife. <laughs> my younger brother's name is Cain. And whenever my mom wanted me to babysit, I'd say, oh, sorry, I'm not able. Oh, there you go. Okay. That's uh, part of your, your school rap that you do? Because you mostly you do school shows now? That's old stand-up comedy stuff I did uh, years and years ago. Don't do that anymore. Okay. Well, talking about old stuff... <laughs> Let's go back to the beginning. Uh, where were you born and what did your parents do for a living? Yeah, I was born in Ohio and I grew up in uh, uh, West Carrollton, Ohio, which is uh, just outside of Dayton. And uh, spent, uh, yeah, all, most, yeah, all, all through high school was there. My uh, dad was an electrical engineer. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, and, uh, but she had a degree in business and she ran the uh, preschool. And she was on the school board for 16 years while I was going through school. They were uh, great parents. They had five kids, and I was the youngest. And any show business connections? Anybody in your family or relatives uh, in the in the biz? No, no showbiz. I had a my grandfather was in a, a minstrel show years and years ago up in Maine. And I think he was uh, Mr. Interlocutor uh, of the day. No, I'm not quite familiar. I know that term. I've heard it, but uh, could you let us know what interlocutor? It's something uh, about speaking, right? Or 
Yeah, in the uh, in the minstrel shows, they'd have three guys, and it was Mr. Interlocutor and Mr. Oh, I'm gonna mess it up now. But there were the they were, they were like there was a straight man and comic. It was way back then, and and in order to get everybody to hear it, the first guy would say. I went home to my wife last night. And the second guy said, oh, really? You went home to your wife last night? Repeating the setup so that people would get the joke. And then mm. he'd come back set up. And Mr. Interlocutor was one of those people. And I wish I was more educated to uh, inform you about that. But uh, that, And they would stand on either end of the chorus. So they'd have a whole like 10 guys in a row. And the two end guys would be the comics. And the guy in the middle would be the MC. And then everybody would sing the songs like that now this was up in maine so they weren't doing the the blackface stuff up there that was just it was just straight ahead uh uh minstrel variety show type of thing yeah when you think of minstrel show you think of like al jolson and obviously you think of blackface which is uh right obviously it's nice that your family wasn't involved at that so we don't have to deal with the political ramifications of that and so sure now so i guess this was sort of before they had real amplification so they used right. this so that people could hear. Right. Yeah. You had to had to repeat the joke. Had to repeat the setup so that they could everybody would hear the joke. And uh, probably where you get the idea of like doing a setup setup punchline rather than just setup punchline. I think that's that's what I've always felt that you had to do two setups often to get to the punchline. There's also that thing like in uh, team juggling, where a lot of times the both people will talk at the same time. It's kind of corny, oh. but it'll be just to kind of push across the that joke or make sure people can hear it. Right, yeah. So it's kind of an old-fashioned type of delivery. So I imagine that in those minstrel shows, if we saw those today, we would think of them as very old-fashioned, both uh, comedically and, and technically for what they were doing. Yeah, I'm sure. Now, what were you interested in as a child before you discovered the wonders of juggling? What were some of your early passions? Oh, uh, I wanted to be a tap dancer at one time, and... Um... And we went to the uh, ice skating uh, follies or something like that. And I wanted to be an ice skater. And <laughs> so I was always putting on little shows at the house for my family. Uh, comedy was a very important part of the uh, family life there. And uh, I think my whole family is funny. And as the youngest kid, now I, I'm, I'm a question for you, because are you the youngest in your family? Yeah, I'm the youngest of three. So I had... Uh... My sister is the oldest, and my brother, then I'm the, the baby of the family. Right. And I have found so many comics that are the youngest in the family. There's something there. Yeah, I think maybe the middle is like the troublemaker. You know, I think we're all trying to get attention in our own way. Right. And, and as the youngest, I found that humor was my best defense against the, the, the travails of the world, that being funny allowed me to uh, get some cachet. And I think we always yeah. sort of driven or feel pulled towards things we're good at. And we were yeah. always uh, interested in comedy. Who were some of your early comedy influences? Uh, Mork and Mindy. Uh, uh, <laughs> Robert Wood watched the Mork and Mindy show. Remember my parents bought his big baggy pants for me. Of course, uh, Steve Martin was a, a big thing there. And uh, I taught myself to juggle when I was uh, like 13. Yeah, when I was 13, we, had a, a, we did a year-round school. So we were on for nine weeks and off for three weeks. And when I was off for three weeks, I don't know. There wasn't anybody who was also off at the same time in my neighborhood. So I was spending a lot of time at home watching uh, TV shows, Price is Right and Merv Griffin. I saw a guy on the Merv Griffin show who was juggling. I kind of noticed, oh, he's doing a figure eight pattern. Oh, oh, yeah, I get it. That's a figure eight pattern. I'm going can, to I can figure that out. And I, I don't know what this guy's name was. I, I think he did a uh, scarf routine to... Uh, classical music. Well, I could solve that mystery for you because that definitely sounds like Michael Marlin. 
Michael Marlin. And the time frame is, is definitely correct because that's when he was appearing on those shows uh, in the right. late 70s. Yeah. And one of his classic bits is that is the scarf juggling to classical music. So, mystery solved. Was it uh, 1812 Overture or William Tell? I think it, I'm not quite sure. I think it was a long piece. I think it was the one uh, by Tchaikovsky. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think that's 1812. Yeah. That was cool. But I, I, I went down to the basement and I'm got the three tennis balls that I'm practicing. It took me several days, but I was really focused and determined to learn how to juggle. Once I got it, I showed everyone that I could do it. And then I realized if I threw one ball a little bit higher, I'd have a little more time to do a trick with the other one under the leg or a bounce or what like that and figure it out behind the back and really self-taught. No one, no one else was juggling in West Carrollton, Ohio at the time. I was doing a lot of sports, doing basketball and uh, cross country and track. And uh, I, I taught my entire cross-country team how to juggle. So we'd show up to these meets, and we would walk the course first. And we would all be juggling as we're walking the course before any of us knew what juggling was at the time. Just I wonder what the other teams thought of us. It was like this insane group from West Carrollton who was juggling. And did people know you as the juggler? Was that part of your identity as school? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was, that was it. And also the class clown and the... Uh, the goofball and the guy who interrupted the teacher all the time. And you ever perform in any school talent shows with your juggling? Yeah, in high school, had uh, two talent shows that really stand out. I, I'd, I'd watched, of course, Michael Davis and said, oh, that's what juggling could be. Oh, you can t- tell jokes and be funny. And yeah, so uh, I put my version of Michael Davis together and uh, went out <laughs> there and had a, a great time with that and also did a, a Mick Jagger impersonation with a with an actual band and uh, walking off stage there and for the next week people were coming up to me telling me how funny I was and how great this was and I say ooh I really like this I like this attention yeah yeah this this might be the thing I'm going to do and what, what Rolling Stones song did you choose? I did I'm So Hot For You I'm So Hot For You You're So Hot For The Hmm She's so cold. Oh, she's so cold, right? Yeah. Yeah. And did you do the whole strutting and the finger pointing and the whole... Yeah. I went to the football coach because uh, the Stones were touring and he was wearing uh, football pants on stage. So I went to the football coach and got some football pants <laughs> and I borrowed a, a Union Jack uh, t-shirt uh, to wear. Just killed it. A good friend of mine was uh, Gary Burks who did a Michael Jackson impersonation. He did that the same year and... The following year, Mick and Michael got together. They did State of Shock. So then, of course, Gary and I had to do State of Shock together as a team the following year in our senior year. Now, has music always been a part of your life? It's, I think you play the, the trombone. I'm, I'm not quite familiar, but I know that you're a musician as well as a juggler. I am. I'm a trumpet player. And trumpet. Uh, yeah, I was playing trumpet since fifth grade. And I was the guy that practiced and took lessons and ended up in first chair all the time. Did solos when I was in high school marching band. Then I went off to, to study that in college. I was that dedicated. And that was a, a weird time because I, I, I kind of knew I wanted to be a performer, but professional juggler, that was so weird and bizarre. I mean, how could you really make a living doing that? How could you study that? So I kind of settled on music as if that was the easy way to get into show business. And you could study music. And my parents definitely wanted me to get a degree. So uh, I told my mom, I'm I'm going to go into music. And, uh, well, she wasn't uh, pleased about that at all. She needed to be an engineer and have a job and have security and stability. She still thinks I might come around. Now, in high school, did you do, uh, were you part of the musical theater? Did they put on any kind of musical theater productions? 
Yeah, I was in uh, basketball for several years, and then I quit my senior year just to do the uh, high school musical. And it was uh, Little Abner, and I got the part of Mary and Sam, the preacher. And that was a great time. My director was uh, uh, Mr. Cummings, and he had one bit of advice I have used today. And he said, you know, I can always tell you guys to give me less, but I, I, I want you to give me more. Give me more. It's so hard to get more out of the actors. So just give me more until I tell you to stop. And so that was my goal was to give or go over the top, over the top, over the top until he finally said, okay, that's enough. And one day he said, stop, that's enough. You're doing too much. And then I knew I was there. And ever since then, that's how I approach, you know, every show It's like, okay, I want to go further, further. If I'm dancing, go wilder. If I'm doing a, a, a gag on stage, push it a little further, a little louder, a little deeper, go further into the audience, whatever it is. Until either I or, or my partner, Mark, says, okay, hold on, you went too far, come back, pull it back. Then you really know what the limits are. You really uh, stretch yourself. That's always been um, a guiding force for me. Well, it's good advice. Always always easier to dial it back. Then yeah. If you start at a, a high level, yeah, then you go, okay, cut it back a little bit. That yeah. makes good sense because then the way you're always sort of putting out that maximum effort. I think audiences can tell when you're really performing, you're really entertaining and I think a lot of jugglers, they kind of um, sit back a little bit too much on that energy level of just really putting it out there. I love it when people come up and say, man, you got a lot of energy. Man, you must be exhausted after that show. And like, yeah, yeah, that's that's always the goal. When you were studying uh, music in college, were you thinking more about going into that direction than the juggling? I mean, you have a you have a degree what, in, in composition. What, what did you actually study musically? at the University of Cincinnati? Yeah, jazz and studio music. I like jazz. Uh, classical just seemed very stiff, and I didn't think, how are you, you going to make a living with that? I like the idea of working in a, a nightclub and playing jazz, you know, on a Saturday night at 2 a.m. and mm. staying up late, uh, sleeping in late. So that, that whole lifestyle seemed pretty cool and hip, and that's what I wanted. And the weird thing, I spent four years there, and they taught me a lot about jazz, but not once did they say, oh, by the way, here's how you get a gig. Yeah, I'd imagine that uh, even between juggler and jazz musician, that juggler would be an easier career path than jazz oh, musician. By far, of course. I didn't know that when I was 18 or 20 or 22, but uh, it's yeah, definitely easier. There's a lot more work out there, a lot less competition out there. So, yeah, and I think I, you definitely, from what I hear, I, you can charge a lot more money for a good juggler than you can for a good trumpet player these days. So, And I think if you're in the, the brass, don't you have to play uh, several different instruments? Can you just do just the trumpet? Oh, uh, yeah, and jazz, you could probably do just the trumpet. You, I mean, you want to bring along a flugelhorn, which is the same exact instrument. It's not like you have to learn something new. But you wouldn't have to play like a trombone or um, a tuba like that. Just a uh, trumpet gets you by. Now, if it's the same instrument, what is the difference between a fugelhorn and a trumpet? Just the sound of it? Uh, yeah, the sound. It's got a much more mellow sound. It's a, it has a bigger bore, so the sound comes out like it's rounder and fuller and deeper, where a, a trumpet has a more uh, sharp bite to it. it. sounds brighter, crisp and clear. If you've ever heard uh, like a Louis uh, Armstrong play, he's got a really bright tone compared to uh, Chuck Mangione, who plays uh, the flugelhorn exclusively, and he's got that very mellow kind of laid back. That's interesting, but it's the exact same fingering, the exact same same yeah. music. Yeah. That's nice. You get sort of two for one. Yeah. And then you start adding uh, mutes to it and then you can change your sound to six different other ways. So uh, get a lot of different sounds to it. Now, do people still use the plunger to cover the end of it? That seemed like a very arbitrary thing to use. 
Oh yeah, well, it's it's great for doing a, a like a wah wah kind of if that makes sense. It's, it's very jazzy, and uh, yeah, they they definitely use that. It's so funny because they actually sell plungers for trumpet players. It's like you could just go get a plunger for three bucks, and it works just as well, and it looks better on stage, in my opinion. It looks real and authentic, but you know, some fancy drum uh, trumpet player go out and spend twenty dollars on a plunger mute do you have any kind of military experience because i see that you were in the army reserve band were you also in in the military as well yes i was i uh i signed up right out of high school the whole idea was to get money to go to college my dad had had it all set up that i could go but i i was wanted to be independent and pay for myself especially since i chose music instead of engineering like they wanted i thought i should kind of pay for that if that was my uh, choice so i went to the army reserve band and uh that's a great experience i was told early on there's two ways to be in the army and that's in the band or as an officer so i started up in the band went to college and i uh, signed up for rotc and eventually got a full scholarship from them and then uh, i graduated as an officer both of those things are the way to serve in the military, and I wouldn't do anything else. Now, if they gave you a scholarship, wasn't there a commitment to serve in the military as well? I mean, when you after you graduated? There was, and at the time, uh, I thought that I would have to go full-time in the reserves or uh, definitely serve in the reserves for five or ten years. But at the time I graduated, they had so many people, they just really didn't need me. So they said, well, we're going to put you in a thing called the IRR, uh, regular reserves. It was um, basically I was on hold. Just go off, live your life. If we need you, we'll call you. Well, then the uh, the war came up, the first Gulf War. And uh, they called me up and they said, hey, maybe you should go down for that training we need you to do. So I went to uh, Indianapolis and did 13 weeks there. And then by the time I was done with the 13 weeks, war was over. And they said, okay, go back to Chicago and we'll call you if you need me. And they never called me. But one day I got a letter in the mail and said that I was promoted to first lieutenant after not serving at a day. <laughs> but if that Gulf War had gone on, would they have then called you to active duty? Oh, yeah. They definitely would have called me into active duty. And uh, I was uh, in a thing called AG, which is like um, we would call the uh, – Chairborne Rangers. We just basically hmm. find a desk and do a lot of bureaucracy, filling roles up, like uh, filling the positions up if people need the here and there and pushing people around. So it probably would have been a stateside position if they really needed me. So you probably wouldn't have seen combat. You probably wouldn't have been shooting off a tank or something like that. Well, that's good. Good timing. Good fortunate for you. Yeah. They, they let me drive a tank one day in training. That was fun. Really? Yeah. With no other training other than just getting the tank and drive? Or how much different is a tank from a car? Yeah. And when you go to uh, basic training, a basic officer training, they're trying to sell you on all the different branches like uh, artillery or tanks or infantry. And so they let you drive a tank to get you excited. Maybe you want to be a, a tanker. So I got to drive a tank for about a quarter of a mile. Yeah, it runs like a big giant tractor, probably, <laughs> you know, it's really bumpy and, and scary to, to put that thing down the, the field. Something I have under my belt, driven a tank. Yeah, very interesting experience. They never let you fly a helicopter or anything like that, I imagine. Just take a little more train to fly that, I'm sure. I'm sure. Ever jump out of any planes or anything like that? No. Any paratrooping? No. Threw a hand grenade, uh, fired oh. a fully automatic rifle. Like a real hand grenade, like the one that exploded or just a dummy? Yeah. Explodes, yeah. They've got oh. this little feet and you throw it over a wall and you dive down and you hear this big explosion and say, hey, I did that. Now, how far would they want you to throw a hand grenade? Let's say there was no wall and you just had to pitch one. 
at what point would you be safe from the range of the of the hand grenade? That's a, uh, I'm I'm thinking thirty feet is what they were wanted us to do. Yeah, because I imagine the shrapnel from that you know flies uh, quite considerably. Right, and well, of course there was this big wall there, so you throw it over the wall and it blows up, and we're all safe on the other side. And no desire to ever juggle the hand grenade. Is that <laughs> no? I I did uh, I definitely did juggling in the. Uh, my training, both in basic training and in uh, officer training, and uh, was known as the juggler. So uh, every now and then we'd be out in the field and have nothing to do for 30 minutes and say, hey, guys, check this out. And I'm up there with three socks or something or maybe some canteens and doing what I can with that. And what about like uh, people around you? Were there any jugglers that you hung out with or people that inspired you? What was the scene like when you were growing up there in Ohio? Because a lot of... uh... A lot of well-known jugglers uh, come from Ohio. Yeah. Well, uh, the first professional juggler I met was Tom Sparrow, and I met him in college. He took me under his wing and uh, took me out to my first school assembly, taught me a lot about just being professional and how to, uh, how to get gigs and how to perform at gigs and how to behave at gigs. When I was in college, uh, well, the Kane brothers went to college with me, same time. Oh, okay. They were freshmen. That year, lived in my dorm. I was hooked up with a, another, uh, an opera singer who was real good. We were trying to learn how to pass clubs, but we never knew how to pass clubs. So we were throwing with, passing with both hands at the same time. Ultimates, I guess you call it. No self throws. Right. Crazy hard to do. And then we met Rick Rubenstein. He comes over and he'd take a look at what we're doing and says, hey, hey guys, what if, what if, I don't know, maybe you did some self throws and did every other pass. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he, just, he knew that. He didn't just figure it out. I mean, he knew actually how to... He had, he had a lot more uh, juggling knowledge than uh, either of us did. So uh, he, he was showing us a lot of stuff along the way, like how to, all the tricks you could do with the passing and stuff like that. So he was a big inspiration to me. And then he and I were actually uh, partners. We, we went down to the Taste of Cincinnati and we did a, a hat passing routine. So uh, whenever anybody mentions clockwork, I say, well, you know, I was I was Rick's first partner, by the way, for about, you know, three days. And what, what about the Kane brothers? Did they did they show you anything? Were they juggling at the time or were you kind of moving in different circles than them? Yeah, it was it was weird because they, they were studying music, too, but they were in the they were singing. And that was over here. And the jazz department was over there. And our paths. Were, yeah, we really didn't cross paths. And later on, I was like, oh, yeah, you were. at I re- Yeah. OK. Now, I'm not familiar with the name Tom Sparrow. Was he a comedy juggler? And, and what was his skill level like? Yeah, he was a, a, a good, dominant local juggler. Um, you know, he didn't tour. He had a family, kept everything close. His, his uh, stage name was the Space Painter. Oh, okay. I've heard of the Space Painter. Yeah, I've heard of that. There you go. Just, uh, yeah, real nice guy. Just does library shows, school assemblies, and uh, corporate parties. Uh, I think we, he and I worked some strolling gigs together, but... Uh, yeah, really solid act. And when you say he taught you to behave, what kind of lessons did he impart about the proper behavior at these type of shows? Yeah, I think the the, the one lesson he said, I, he said, hey, come to the school assembly with me. Let's learn how to do that. And I was like, yeah, sure, okay. And I show up and I'm doing a thing. And then afterwards, he says, yeah, actually, if you do a school assembly, you probably shouldn't wear jeans to come to a school because they don't even let the teachers wear the Oh, you got to, how you dress is important. And Greeting the people when you get to a, a, a gig. How do you, you walk up to them with confidence and he's very positive and happy and supportive and all this stuff. Like, uh, he's just positive. Like, I was just watching him, everything he did and said, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do that. 
I'm going to be positive like that. Shake hands and get names and ask the, the right questions. Where's the restroom at? And when do you want me to start? And where do you want me to perform? Don't have to guess a lot of things like that. So those were the, uh, the big lessons when you first start out. That's a good lesson that the gig starts right when you get there. It doesn't actually start yeah. when, you're, when you hit the stage. But from that first contact with the person who hired you and how you, everything basically is representative of who you are as a performer, not just your time on stage. Right. Yeah. Which is something I do now. I, I do a lot of school assemblies. So uh, when I get to the school, I meet the front office and I always bring the front office a little bag of cookies and leave it to them. I say, you're probably not going to see the show, which is just shame. It's a great show. But to make up for that, here's some cookies for the front office just so they remember me, because they're probably the ones that are sending the contracts back and forth and answering the emails. So want to keep on their good side. That's a nice move. But how did you make the transition? So you, you graduate from college, you're in the Army Reserve, you're playing in some bands. And how did you start your actual professional career as a juggler? Yeah, I, I moved to Chicago. I mean, I was digging uh, quite a lot in uh, college. I, I learned how to walk stilts when I was down there. Uh, Stephen Agatz actually called me up to uh, uh, crash on my couch because he had a gig in Cincinnati and he was walking stilts. And I'm like, and I found out how much money he was making walking stilts. I'm like, I'm going to learn stilts because they have to bring somebody in from out of town. I'm going to do that. I learned how to walk stilts down there. I learned how to eat fire in college and then off to uh, Chicago to get started up there. The, the best thing you can do to get started in actually working is find other jugglers because they get jobs that they can't handle, that they don't want to handle, and they'll pass them off to use. My first call was to Andy Head, who I'd never met before, but I knew he was a, uh, a great juggler. He's a, a gentleman juggler, does a bowler hat routine and a three ball routine. It's just really classic and just great with the character type of juggling. He invited me over to his house and I was so honored and met his wife, Kim, just lovely people. We had spaghetti for dinner and he told me to bring my tape over, my comedy tape. Okay, great. <laughs> and then I found out, oh, these are very, very Christian people. They, they don't swear. They don't do, you know, they're very straight down the line. Oh God, my comedy tape is going to kill them. Oh no, I don't want them to see the tape. I was like, we don't need to see it. No, 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 let's see it. No, we don't see it. We got, okay, okay, we'll see it. And we watched it, the entire thing. And they just kind of looked at it because it was, I had a lot of off color humor in that. But Andy was so great. He, he turned it off and he said, you know what? Uh, I mean, not just because I'm a Christian, but as a professional entertainer, you might want to think about going clean because there's a lot more work as for a clean performer than somebody who tells a lot of jokes like that. And uh, he was right. And that's exactly what I did. That's the, the new path I took and started cleaning up my act. And if any listeners don't know Andy Head, really worth looking at because uh... – First of all, he had the, such a great look for a juggler, that tall, lanky, sort of cartoony, uh, like who did he look like? Like maybe Fred McMurray or just such a clean, classic look Andy has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He looks like he's uh, from uh, 40, 40 years ago uh, or maybe 80 years ago, that type of juggler. But yeah, he's just so lovable on stage. You know, you can't help but watch him perform and just like him. It's like, I yes, like this guy. I'm cheering for him, everything he does. And great work with the hats, and he had a routine, I remember, with like a, a stool, a ball, and a hat that oh, incorporated yeah. head rolls. Yeah, I think he, I'm pretty sure he won the IGA championships one year with that act. Competed at least twice, and I, he may have gotten gold or, or won twice doing that. And are you still in touch with Andy? I haven't seen him. I saw him at the festival. 
I think he came out to Cedar Rapids. Actually, yeah, I had him out there in the show in oh. Cedar Rapids uh, five years ago. And him and Kim came out. And, and like you said, they're a lovely couple. Yeah, I, I called him up over uh, during COVID, just, just checking in and seeing how they were. And uh, his wife, Kim, was a, a great singer. And he did a routine where she would sing a song, Moon Glow, and the lights would dim down really low, and he would juggle three glowing balls. Just mm. beautiful routine. And uh, that inspired me later on to do a, a three-ball glow routine at um, Booby Trap. So it's, it's still inspiring me. Yeah, we had Scott Neary, who's the producer of Booby Trap, on a few episodes again. And that's a, a wonderful long-running show in L.A. I think they are they had a break during COVID, but I think they're starting to bring that back. Oh, yeah. he just uh, Friday night, they had a sold-out show. And uh, from all tells, it was just a fantastic off-the-hook type of show. So uh, I'm so excited that's back because that's, that that's the end of COVID when Booby Trap is back in town. Great Hollywood show. Any performer get down to see that in Hollywood when they can. That's a very interesting format, too. Like, everybody has a very short period of time. I don't believe anybody gets paid, which is, <laughs> you know, hard to pull off, but he does it, right? Right. 14 acts a night. Uh, you have four minutes to do your show. I performed uh, maybe half dozen times, and that's always a challenge to trim your stuff down. It's fun because I bring my trumpet, and I get to play with the band on stage and then jump in and do my act. Hmm. It's really, really fun. Had a, a one routine I did. I had made um, some uh, juggling wine bottles, so I did kind of a drunk juggler type of thing, and who play, also played the trumpet. That was fun. I did my glow ball routine. Did, did a little fire eating bit once there. So do you still do fire eating? That's the one thing that I never got into, because I, I heard as one time someone said that oh, every time you fire eat, no matter what, some of the gasoline gets into your mouth, and it's really bad for your teeth. I just heard so many bad things about it. Have you felt any ill effects from doing the fire eating? I have not felt any ill effects. I've, I've heard the same things too. And I've talked to doctors and they're like, no, if it got into your system and like 24 hours later, it would get out or something like that. My doctor was not worried about it. You get real problems. Like uh, I think the guys in India who are on the corner doing it over and over and over and over and over again, I think they might have some problems, but I think they also have a lot of other problems too that might look like problems from fire eating. But I, I haven't done, I gave up fire about oh, five years ago. It's just a little more stress than I really need because there's always just a little bit of problem and people are saying, oh, we don't really want that here or are you sure it's safe? And I was like, you know what, I, I'm doing, I'm mostly performing for kids. I won't do fire for kids and I just don't need to perform that anymore. A lot of places have outlawed it entirely. Like you just can't do it, you know, or you have to get a permit that's really hard to get. And yeah. probably the better choice is to is to let the fire part go. I think there's a big difference too between fire eating and fire blowing, like where you blow the big giant. I think that you have to have a big mouthful of gas. So if you're just fire eating, it's probably a lot safer. Yeah, and I have done the fire uh, breathing, which got me two jobs in Hollywood. Uh, one on martial law with Arsenio Hall. I was, uh, there was a big fight scene down in Venice Beach, and I was a, a street performer breathing fire. And then the bad guy grabs the torch out of my hand hmm. and breathes fire on the good guy and runs right. away. And then another time I break fire for uh, The Spy Who Shagged Me, the Austin Powers movie. I'm in the, the opening scene of it. I'm on the far right, and I come on and I breathe fire. And it takes longer for me to explain where I am than I actually am on screen. One of the only experiences I had was a, a person who did it in one of our early shows. There was a show called Hats Off. We had a guy who was breathing, the, you know, blowing the fire. You call it fire breathing? 
Is that when you sort of blow the giant fireballs? Is that what that is? Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he did that. But what happened was he did it one time and some of the gas spilled down his chin. Oh. And he didn't wipe it off before he blew it the next time. Mm-hmm. And his bottom half of his face pretty much caught on fire and uh, had to be put out. And it was uh-huh. it was like at a, a news conference thing, like a news, you know, the, the news was there to kind of do promotion for the show. And so you could see him like trying to put himself out. And I thought, well, that's not for me. That's not. Yeah. And even if he's not hurt, it just looks really bad for the audience and makes the audience feel very uncomfortable that he's going through that. It's very likely that he could put it out fast enough that he wouldn't hurt himself, but it's just a bad look. Yeah. I remember once uh, in my younger days, I was trying to impress a girl by putting a flame out with my hand and then my whole hand caught on fire. (laughs) Like putting it out, I was like, oh, you're not going to go out with me now, are you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're showing bad judgment there, Obadiah. I don't think you're... (laughs) The dating type. <laughs> Let's talk about a couple other jugglers you've mentioned in your notes here, because I, bo- I know both these gentlemen, uh, Mickey Simple and Brad Weston, who are both uh, very good entertainers. Well, yeah, up in Chicago, both of those guys are there. Uh, Mickey Simple got me this fantastic job, an opportunity to do um, dinner theater. There were two dinner theaters, Gangstertown Dinner Theater and... Oh, wait, wait, I'm sorry. There was Dry Gulch, Country Western Place, the King's Manor, a medieval-type restaurant, and then both of those closed down to make Gangster Town, which was uh, a, a gangster-type uh, hmm. theater. And uh, Mickey uh, got me connected with that. And uh, that was a great place to just do my show time and time again and really, really perfect every little bit about it, get the, all those nuances. Then I met Brad Weston at the Juggling Club, and he was he's younger than me, a few years younger, and he was just starting out. He a couple of gigs here and there, but I always looked at him as kind of a, a green juggler. He was good, and I knew he was going places. And then one day, my the boss at the dinner theater says, hey, we need another variety performer. Anyone you want to recommend? And I'm thinking, well, no, I'm not going to recommend another for, what are you, crazy? But I wanted to make my boss happy. And then Brad, great guy, I thought, you know what? I'm, I'm going to give Brad a little, throw Brad a bone here and, and help Brad out. But I mean, He'll go and audition for this thing, but he won't get it. But he'll think I'm a good guy for giving it to him. And and my boss will think I'm a good guy for offering Brad. And then I'll still keep my job. And then Brad Weston, that little guy, he's got the job. Ah. He's really good. He got the job and, you know, he was working there too. We were working different. He'd work at one club and I'd work at the other club. And uh, he's a great performer, but I had... I had underestimated the man, so and he doesn't know that story. So if he's listening, he doesn't know my motivation. Well, it's probably a long time, and he he just he just owes you either way. So right, right. Even though your motivations weren't pure, he still ended up getting a sweet gig. So I take full credit for all of his success in the past thirty years. As you should, as you should. He owes you. He owes you both emotionally and financially. So if you want to. <laughs> Make some arrangements. Now, I could see you as a gangster, too, because the things I've seen you on video, you sort of like that zoot suit gangster kind of costume. Is that your, not in schools, of course, but is that something you like to wear, like a booby trap and things like that? Right, yeah. That's my uh, stand-up comedy look that I used uh, when I was back at the Improv in Chicago and the Gangster Town and uh, booby trap. Uh, I I love the zoot suit thing. It's got nice big pockets. You can put uh, juggling balls in there. It's got an interior pocket. You can walk out with hands free and still have a lot of props on you at the same time. 
Yeah, that's great. And of course, uh, adding a bowler hat to it or uh, uh, like a gangster hat that has a little uh, divot on the top. Yeah, the fedora? Yeah, fedora. That's the name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love juggling with that because you, as you're juggling, you can catch a ball in the brim of the hat and you can also catch a ball right on the top and uh, makes a nice little stall motions there. I love that bright. Uh, you have a purple one, a brown, uh, a bright brown with yellow trim and a yellow one. I love, love that. Now, you mentioned something that I think a lot of uh, comedy jugglers should get into, or at least explore, that you also did stand-up. How do you think the stand-up sort of uh, affected your comedy juggling uh, performances, and what were the benefits, and who were some of the comics you worked with in that that world? Oh, wow, yeah, because I was up to the the Improv Comedy Club. I worked with uh, a guy named Gideon Bailey, and there's uh, Kevin Rogers. So many acts were coming through there. It was like a school of comedy. And uh, when I look at comedy, a lot of it is the timing of it, getting the right number of syllables in a joke, which I feel like I'm pulling from my musical career to get the right feel for the timing and the right feel, get the right word at the right time. On top of all that, I was doing a lot of improv comedy, which, man, any performer, you've got to do some improv training just to get the feel for taking on any possible situation. When things go wrong, you've got something. When you get a volunteer up there, as soon as the volunteer gets on stage, the script goes out the window and you just have to work with what you got right there. And that's, that was the training I was getting from stand-up comedy, the timing. And then the fun thing is, is that I'm actually doing a lot of jokes in my school show now. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's exactly how a stand-up comedy would deliver that line. Like that with the pause and the this and that. Of course, I can't think of any examples offhand right now. No, but you're saying like you're so correct that the rhythm... And the pacing, all those things that uh, you not only learn from music, but from stand-up comedy as well, they serve you very well in delivering comic dialogue of any type. Yeah. And so as comedy jugglers, the fact that very few of the ones I know sort of study improv, and like I studied improv with the Groundlings, and even though I haven't done a lot of stand-up, I certainly got to work with so many of the great stand-ups of the 80s and 90s, that just being in that environment about people who are trying to be funny is very helpful. Yeah. You've heard uh, Robin Williams, right? Yeah, because uh, we were first seen uh, on The Tonight Show by Billy Crystal's management. So he was the first big name we act we worked for. Because a lot of people wanted an act that was funny, but that wouldn't do topical material. So that way the comic, never you never stepped on their toes. Right. And Billy Crystal and Robin Williams had the same management. So once we proved ourselves with Billy Crystal, uh, that's when we sort of got the go-ahead. Because Robin was doing much bigger shows. Uh, We worked with Billy in Atlantic City, like 800 seaters, 1,000 seaters, something like that. And then uh, Robin Williams was doing like four to 6,000 seater colleges. Wow. So I think we had to sort of prove ourselves first. Now in Chicago, did you work on that? I think it was on Wacker. I think it was an improv and Wacker Drive in the hotel there. Yeah, that's the uh, the improv uh, mm-hmm. comedy club we've been doing for for years. We get a whole uh, week there, and yeah. uh, they they had really expanded because normally it was a three comic set at most comedy clubs: opener, middle, and then uh, headliner. But they were switching it around so they would have uh, more variety, and I think they would have five or six guys at a night do about maybe ten to twenty minutes a piece like that and that was i was actually closing but not because i was headliner material but because i was the juggler type of guy and they felt that that was better for using the getting the checks out <laughs> they said i said the juggler up on stage and it just works out better because you didn't have to pay maybe as close attention to me i guess or 
I know uh, back in the day they would have, they called it a mute act. They'd put the mute act on the blast so that when they were taking the checks, there wasn't any talking going up on stage. So they uh, wasn't confusing it, the bills up. Yeah, we used to work there back in the late 80s. We think we did maybe a few years. We'd go there for two or three weeks a year. Always loved Chicago. Great city, of course. And we liked working for the brief boom of the comedy clubs. We got to headline quite a few clubs, but then, of course, it died for us very quickly because one time we did a club and it was very interesting. The owner said we were, we were doing well. I mean, we got good response. But he said that people drink less when you're on, that they're, they're paying too much attention. Like they have to watch you more. <laughs> wow. So our bar tab is down, so we're not going to have you back because you're not selling as many drinks. Wow. But for that brief period of time, there were so many comedy clubs, even the juggling act, you know, the Respinis got to headline when we when we got to work them. And it was a pretty decent gig back in the day. I'm sure for the club owners, they were thinking, wait a minute, I don't have to pay a whole band and I can have three shows in a night rather than just one. And that could clear everybody out and bring more people in. Yeah. The overhead was hardly anything because they didn't have to have like big stage and a big sound system. They just had working microphone and working speakers. That's all they needed. They didn't have to have someone mixing the board in the back room and dealing with bass players. No one wants to deal with bass players. Good Lord. Or trumpet players or drummers. They're the worst. They're the worst. But they just overdid it. I think there's got to be so many clubs and it kind of oversaturated. And I just think that uh, like, like in any field, the top people started making a lot of money. But the majority of the people were making no money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was working as an opening act. I remember for a whole week as an opener, I'd make 150 bucks. It's like, what the hell? Yeah. And then you're sleeping. Uh, if you're lucky, they give you a, the comedy condo or you're on the couch. Or yeah, I remember I, I was in Indianapolis doing a week as an opener for 150, maybe 200 bucks, staying at the comedy condo. And uh, I, had a, I thought I had an okay week, but uh, Saturday night came around and did the midnight show and I bombed. Oh, it was just <laughs> terrible. Just <laughs> right. As I, I was coming off the stage, you know, I think. Somebody said, don't quit your day job, that old line. It's like, oh, God, cut me to the core. But then I ran into the owner of the club, who I had not met the entire week. The only show he saw the hmm. entire week was Saturday night, midnight show. And he was drunk, and he hated it, and I hated it, too. And he says, you, you suck. Don't ever come back. And I'm like, oh. And I was defeated, and I talked to the manager, and the manager like said, listen, the, the owner, he doesn't have any control here. He just owns the place. But we, we thought you were going to do more comedy and not so much juggling, but uh, maybe you could work out some stuff. And But don't worry, you can come back. But after that horrible night there, I had to take you know the internal survey of myself and like, wow, was I really that bad? And at that moment, I really decided, no, I'm going to – that's the moment I said, I'm going to be a professional entertainer for the rest of my life just to prove that jackass wrong, that's what I'm going to do. What, what period of time did you move to Los Angeles? Was that around that time or uh, later in your career? Yeah, that was, uh, that was in, um, moved to, in 97. I moved to L.A., came out here for fame and fortune, was hoping to do stand-up comedies, hoping to get into movies and TV and all that type of stuff. Came for fame and fortune, but I'll take either at this point. I don't need both. <laughs> which would you rather have, fame or fortune? Which is, which is more important to you? Well, I've got kids and a family, you know, I, I think I need fortune just for stability. Fame, I've seen people with fame and the comic um, Bobcat, Goldthwait. Mm -hmm. He said, fame is like the dogs that run around the track and they chase the rabbit, but the rabbit's a fake rabbit. And once they catch the rabbit, 
the dogs are no good for running because they know it's all a big scam. He says, that's what fame is like. You're chasing this rabbit, but once you have it, you realize it's nothing. It doesn't mean anything. I've met a lot of people here and there's uh, in LA and there's just so many fake people that think they're famous and think they're rich and think they're important, but they're just, yeah, I just rather have the money to support my family and, uh, and do my act the way I want to do it. And uh, that'd be great. And when you got to L.A., were you, did you have to start over? Did you have to meet new agents? Yeah. How did you sort of uh, recreate your career in Los Angeles? Oh, yeah. It took seven years. Now, it took me seven years to get good in Chicago, and I thought I would just walk into L.A., but it took another seven years to start over. Yeah, even uh, Jay Leno said, you know, so how, long, how long does it take to become a comic? He says seven years. It's like it takes seven years of just hard work. So coming out here, it was a little easier the second time around. I met Laura. Do you remember Laura Green? The Juggling Queen, of course. The Juggling Queen, yes. Well, <laughs> he was somebody I called up first off the bat, one of the few people I met at the uh, juggling convention that I could felt comfortable to call, and she was just about to give it all up. She was That's where I called her. And I said, hey, she says, come over to my house. I got to meet you. And, and we talk, and she says, oh, yeah, you got to meet Billy Barrett. You got to meet Tuba Heatherton and Phil Briggs, the, these clowns that do great jobs. And she just handed me her Rolodex. She said, here's my Rolodex call everybody and that's what i did i started calling everybody i haven't spoken to her since and i hope she's doing great and i would love to send her a huge thank you though for all she did when i moved out to la it was great and and through that meeting her and meeting somebody else i got to work in an opera did pagliacci which is a performing on stage with opera singers all around you and i'm juggling and breathing fire there real big uh house I think that was a thing. I think it was a thousand seat theater down there. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I hear she might be at the the festival this year in Cedar Rapids. Oh. So be a good place to reconnect if you're if you'd be able to get yeah. out there. Yeah. Yeah. She's a very nice woman. Very helpful, like you said. Uh, always been helpful to me. I met her pretty early. I think I was still a teenager when I met Laura, uh, even before I teamed up with Barry for the Raspinis. Oh wow! Always a very positive force in juggling, encouraging, and teaching workshops. Yeah. I think she was also helped to start the Flamingo Award that they give out to a, a promising female juggler every year at the festivals. Oh, yeah. Okay. Did you ever get any, any roles in movies or anything anything in showbiz other than uh, you know, the stand-up? Did you ever work with any uh, you know, big stars? No, I worked with Jack Lemmon. Well, I was walking stilts in the background. <laughs> and Jack Lemmon was uh, in a thing called Inherit the Wind, a little TV made for TV movie. And then I mentioned uh, the spy who shagged me in uh, martial law with Arsenio Hall, but never really did any acting, acting. I can't say that I got any uh, lines other than some student projects around here. It came, I was, I had an agent for uh, commercials and that was the same time I met uh, Mark Beckwith, my uh, school show performer partner, and then school shows just took off. And so I just let the acting fall to the wayside as I'm just picking up all these other gigs along the way. That really comes down to fame or fortune. I mean, I could have stuck it out and tried to get more and more roles and struggled and struggled and struggled. And that's mostly trying to appease my ego, but rather I got these school shows and that's was paying my bills. So that's what I put all my focus into. And we've uh, built a, a really solid business with uh, school assemblies. Well, you'd have a sideline that obviously is, is, when people want to make the big bucks, this is what they go into. Because you also make uh, cigar boxes. You make props. Right, yeah. I, I created a new show for my school assembly, and I had the idea that of cigar boxes. That was the 
through line of the show was boxes. And I needed 20 cigar boxes. Well, I checked out the Henry boxes from Dubai, and they're like $40 a piece. I'm like, that's $800 of boxes. And I am incredibly cheap. So I'm like, oh, I'll just make them myself. So the first set of boxes I made, I just bought a new TV and they had that really thick cardboard. I said, ooh, I'm going to cut the cardboard into rectangles and stack the rectangles up until they're a box and tape it all together. And that'll be a really cheap, effective box. And I can get 20 of those easy. And so I did. I made them. And I said, ooh, you know, I can make these for $5 a piece, $10 a piece and sell them to jugglers. Nice way to practice juggling, you know, and like this. And I, I posted it on facebook and then dick franco calls me up and he says right. hey uh boxes look interesting why don't you send me a set i was like okay and he was looking for a new box for kai tojo his son and uh, i sent him and then he, he called me back hey obadiah those are the worst boxes ever <laughs> oh my god they're horrible and i was like well yeah they're made out of cardboard i mean you know they're ten dollar boxes and then i said hey you know hey dick you know it, i got an idea let me get back to you here and so I went to the uh, hardware store and I found some thin plywood that looked good, uh, wood, and I just covered the cardboard with wood. And I sent that to him and he says, oh, these are great, but they're too heavy because they got cardboard inside. So now I'm making uh, boxes with styrofoam. I cut out the interior dimension of the box with styrofoam and put wood paneling on all six sides and uh, tape it up and it makes a really good box it's got a nice sound it's solid and the angles are 90 degree angles all the way around and you can make consistent boxes i sent that to dick and he's like well that's that's good let's change this let's change that let's do this let's get different ends on it so dick and i went back and forth several times and he really helped me develop my cigar box making then i saw Kristen christoff he was um uh you know Kristen christoff yeah, he has a record for the pirouettes, I think, now. like uh, Right. I forget how many, but maybe all three up, three pirouettes or something? Yeah, he does three three boxes up, four pirouettes. He performs one up with four pirouettes, which is just brilliant. Uh, Hungarian juggler does the uh, European circus market over there. Just so classy. It looks great in a tuxedo and has a whole the whole gentleman juggler type of thing. And so I said, hey, how much do your boxes weigh? They look so light. And told me, it's like, ooh, that's like half of what uh, Dick Franco wanted. So yeah. I challenged myself to make him a set, sent him off, and he was so nice. He took my set, and he filmed himself doing his world record pirouette with my boxes, and he said my name. And, nice. whoa, my God, shared that with everybody. And then he contacted me later. He said, hey, why don't you make me a set of these? And uh, Niels Junker, I made him a set. I met him, and he tried my boxes out, and he, he wanted a set of those. But then last uh, over the COVID era, I came up with a new box that was uh, see-through. I found some plexiglass, and if you cut it just right and you tape it together and you glue it with the right glue gun, they work great, and you can see through them. And uh, maybe you know the juggler, uh, Samo Samo. Uh, Jeremiah, he's a great box juggler. Does he post a lot of stuff on, on Facebook? Oh, yeah. He's always posting his videos on Facebook, and he, he juggles boxes like no, like you're not supposed to juggle boxes, which is incredible. He like does all these tricks that never does a trick that you're su supposed to do with boxes. It's fantastic. So he has that. And then um, Neil saw the clear boxes and he came up with an idea for doing a magic trick with cigar boxes, but he needed a lid so I could open and close the box and put an envelope in each of the three boxes. So then I had to design a box that opened and closed and sent that off to him for his uh, juggling magic trick. 
Then uh, Charles uh, Pichuk, he had an idea that he wanted uh, Nemo to be dangling mm. inside <laughs> their box, but with some liquid on the front of it. So I had to come up with a double-paned glass on the front of it, fill it with liquid and dye it blue. And, and there you see it. He's juggling water with Nemo in the back and these uh, clear boxes. And then the weirdest box, Nathan Wakefield contacted me. He's like a macabre juggler, morbid stuff. He does a rollabola with a uh, coffin on top. Oh, okay. And he says, can I put something inside the box? Oh, yeah. What do you want? Uh, a fox skull or, or maybe a dead mouse. I'm like, <laughs> what? What? And so he sends me a taxidermied fox skull and a, a taxidermied mouse and and I, the the fox skull was just too thick to make um uh, to be inside the cigar box. It just wouldn't couldn't really grab it afterwards. But the mouse worked just fine. I uh, glue gunned it inside and attached it inside and made the box all around it and sent it off. And I've got three boxes I made for him that are, have a mouse inside of it. The most I, I think it's the most bizarre juggling prop the world has ever seen. Yeah, I chat with Nathan a lot on Facebook. He's a very nice guy. He used to be a chairman of the board of the IJ. When I did the festival five years ago, he was the my liaison with the IJ. He was the chairman at the time. And uh, I was very mean to him, but <laughs> but because I was under a lot of stress and I just was not myself. But, but I subsequently, I reached out to him to be, be more of my real self and we become really good friends and I chat with him quite a bit. But he does have a very unusual, macabre... Uh, sort of outlook and, and sensibilities. And I can see him with a mouse. At first, when I saw that in the note, I thought, oh my God, I hope it's not a live mouse. <laughs> no, no. Well, yeah, when he first said it, I was like, what, what? You're going to try to feed this thing? No. So, uh, yeah, a very, very taxidermied mouse. Yeah, so that's, the, now we're getting towards the end of the podcast. and I don't want to end on that note. So let's talk a little bit more about your school shows and maybe give us a few tips about connecting with the audience and, and what you've sort of learned by doing all these shows with the students in schools. And also, are your uh, boxes still available? Can people buy them? And how would they do that? Yeah, now that the school season's over, I, I've got some time to make some more boxes over the summer. So if uh, anybody needs a set, uh, I, I specialize in custom-made boxes. Uh, give me the exact size you want. You can tell me the weight you want, and I can probably duplicate that. And uh, also make uh, juggling wine bottles if you want that. Actually, Niels Dunker's making wine bottles now, and his are probably really good. Just, just get his. Uh, but school assemblies, yeah, this is this is our full-time gig, and it, uh, schools are the best possible audience ever. There's uh, usually 600 kids at a school, so uh, this morning I did two shows with 300 kids and 300 kids, and all you have to do is be more entertaining than math class. They're getting out of school, and they're coming in, and they're so well-behaved because their teacher is there, and they know that their teacher can boot them out. It's not like a bar mitzvah or a birthday party or a library show they've got to behave themselves, but they're really excited about not being in school at that moment. So it's really got the best of both worlds on that. And what I really like is that we're bringing a message to the kids. Today's message was about character, talking about trustworthiness and respect and responsibility, things like that. We have another program called Stop, Think, Act, which is about social emotional learning. And this is a, it's a kind of new thing because, you know, kids have emotions, but they don't know how to deal with them and they act out. And well, of course, that can lead to some really, really tragic and bad results. So in elementary school, you want to get kids to deal with their emotions, to get feel these emotions and about to make you make a bad decision. If you just stop, 
and then you think about what emotions you're feeling and then you act and you make the right choice. So we have a really fun way of uh, talking through the different types of emotions you can have and how to manage them, how to manage your body while you're going through these emotions. Uh, that one's really fun because we bring a TV up on stage and the TV is nice because any type of time there's a word or a graphic, we can just put it up on the screen. But then we have a video come up and there's Pewee the Pig, which is Mark is the uh, the voice of that. And he, Pewee and I have a conversation because we've scripted this out. So he's he's on video, but we're talking back and forth like he's a live person. Right. And it's a, it's a great a way to level yourself up. And for anybody out there, adding a TV to your show, man, it costs about, we've got good TVs for like 300 bucks and you get a, a case for under, oh, I, I think for under $600, you can put a TV in your show and play videos and have visuals and words up on there. And it's a fantastic addition to your show as far as adding value. So you just like do a script, you leave the spaces for the responses, and that way you're interacting with a character on the screen. And I bet the kids get a real kick out of that. Oh, they do. And a lot of the kids are like, they, they, don't, they don't get it. I mean, a third grader doesn't know how how that happened. They just assume that the pig was calling in on Zoom or something, or he's in another room and he's, you know, actually interacting with me at the time. So uh, that's a, it's a really fun illusion. And the name of your uh, school program or the name of your uh, your company is Razzle Bamboom. Razzle Bamboom is the name. And we've been working since 1999. We have 12 different shows that we've done. We've done a, a Wright Brothers musical, uh, 200 Years of American Music. We have a rock and roll show. We get into the messages about caring. We have a kindness program. We have a program about bullies, uh, Bye Bye Bully. We have a program about the social emotional character. Let's see, what else are we doing? Oh, uh, environment shows. We have a show just about water conservation and water science and another one about reduce, reuse, recycle like that. Oh, uh, speaking of jugglers who do assemblies, you know um, Earthcapades? Yes, they're they're located up here. Yeah, Heart Life. Yeah, they're they do uh, environmental shows as a, a juggling duo, and they're they're quite the competition for us. But uh, salute to them because they're doing a great job on the Northern California. Yeah, he's a good guy. I guess he used to work with Doug Nolan. I think he's uh, Doug's off on his own as well doing the school shows. Yeah, the name Earthcapades often comes up when we're talking to. Uh, Sponsors. We, we've been very lucky to get uh, sponsors to um, pay for the shows to go to the school. So basically, all we have to do is contact the schools and say, would you like a free show about water education? And we'll come down and do that for you. And then the water district pays for us to, to go down and perform that for them. Yeah, people don't understand that the school assemblies, they work different in different states. Like here in California, you're not paid by the schools directly. You have to get sponsors. But a lot of other states, they're pretty good payment from the schools themselves. Right. Well, yeah, we uh, we have a couple shows that are sponsored, but we also get today's show was the character show, and that was paid for by the PTA. Okay. And uh, some districts will have a budget for uh, a certain amount of school assemblies or field trips, and but field trips are crazy expensive because of the cost of the bus and the insurance for the bus. You know, an assembly is a, a bargain compared to that. If you had to leave us with some last words about you know, how to connect with these kids or how to connect with an audience through the use of props, you know, through use yeah. of movement and music. What kind of a maybe tip can you give us about your experience with that? Okay, well, here's a tip on getting a volunteer from the audience. Um, every every juggler has a bit where they get a volunteer for the audience. They say, I need a volunteer and all the hands go straight up. 
don't ever pick a kid because they raise their hand. That's what they're trained to do. And it's boring. So come up with a new way of doing it. Like uh, one thing I do is I'm going to pick the happiest kid in the room, you know, and now all the kids are smiling and then I can pick somebody. I'm going to pick the kid who shows me the best finger dance and they show their fingers and dance, or I'll have them all stand up and pretend to be a tap dancing elephant. So they're all standing up and they're a tap dancing elephant. Right. And then I'm looking around at any two, two or three that spark. And then I tell them all to sit down. And if the, the one or two that spark, one of them's going to be looking right at me because they really want it. And the other one might be looking at their friend. The one looking at their friends never picks them because they want to perform for their friends. But that other kid, he wants the spot and he wants to perform for you and do a great job and uh, bring that kid up and well, never guaranteed, but it's very likely that they're going to be a really good performer get them up and I, I take some time with them before we go into the the routine and make them feel comfortable on stage, loosen up, get loose, what's your name, how you doing, uh, make them a star, and then we go into the routine and we have a great time with that. But never pick people by hand raising, never. It's kind of like what a hypnotist will do. You kind of pre-test them by having them do something in the audience. That way you can really pick the ones who sort of shine. Yeah. And sort of that way you sort of know what you're getting to some degree. Yeah. And the other benefit is if you have them all stand up and do something, well, halfway through the show, they all want to stand up for a while. If they've been sitting on a cold floor, you know, getting them to stand up gets a lot of uh, jitters out of them and they can be a good audience for the rest of the show. And it's just fun for them to, to get a chance to kind of everybody does something right now and they all get up and, uh, and do that. Well, you've had a, a nice long career. You've been definitely doing some diversified stuff, and now you've found a good market in the schools. What's the future hold for Obadiah Thomas? Oh, wow, the future. Well, we are doing a thing called Start With Heart videos. These are three-minute videos that teachers can play in the classroom, and they cover everything we do in an assembly, but in a three-minute format. We still do music. We still do comedy. We, I juggle in a couple of these things. And we have, uh, we have all these different characters. So it's like, a, it's like a TV show for the classroom. We have created 180 of these. It's, wow. You go to startwithheartvideos.com. Cool. That's a great idea. 180. Wow, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. And, it's, and then after they've been watching these videos and I show up to do an assembly, now I'm a YouTube star. I mean, I'm telling you, these kids are looking at me and they're covering their mouth because they're just, so, oh my God, you're the guy, you're the, you're on the show, on the show. And I'm like, I'm just Obadiah, come on. Well, but now you can tell all the kids that you're on the Drop Everything podcast. Right, well, now. They'll go crazy. Growing up now, oh, I tell you what. And let me thank you for being on. The, we've come to the end of our time, Obadiah, but thanks for being a, a very interesting guest and thanks for being on the Drop Everything podcast, ladies and gentlemen, the great Obadiah Thomas. Thank you so much. It has been fantastic talking to you. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 106 with my special guest, Obadiah Thomas. A big thanks to the IGA for sponsoring this podcast. I hope you all have a great time this summer at the upcoming IGA Festival. Until then, drop everything except when you're juggling.